Hello, and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. LTJ Bookham is one of the most famous names in drum and bass, a UK-bred producer and DJ who helped smooth out some of the rougher edges of hardcore in the late 80s and early 90s. For some, that meant Bookham, born Daniel Williamson, was offering a much-needed cerebral alternative to the rough and tumble jungle sound that was also exploding around that time. Along with the artists he was signing to his good-looking label, Bookham became a leading light for what many were calling intelligent drum and bass. He's never liked the term, though. He's long made clear that his end of hardcore was no more proper than what was happening elsewhere along the continuum. With a musical upbringing full of piano lessons and early exposure to classical music and jazz fusion, he came into early rave culture with a melodic streak that felt absolutely of a piece with his surroundings. In this career-spanning interview with Joe Muggs, Bookham touches on all this while discussing his busy present and ambitious future. Daddy, LTJ Bookham, the man, the legend. Um, what have uh, the big events you've been doing this summer been? Yeah, um, well, last week I did a global gathering, which was nice. Played the hospital tent and did, did, did a back to back with Fabio, and that was really good. With the sound levels, uh, I find the festivals a bit annoying sometimes nowadays with all the kind of restrictions you have uh, with levels and stuff. So it's kind of kind of can get a bit annoying. I'm used to the old days of the 80s with a no restriction, no, no holes barred, big sound systems and but it was it was a good time, fun time and a couple of weeks earlier I was over in uh, New York actually to do um, Disco Biscuits which is like a massive festival. They're a, they're a kind of band that's uh, similar to like kind of Sound Tribe Sector 9, don't know if you heard of them. Uh, they do kind of massive shows all over the States and I was invited to play set there so I did that as well. I'm off to um, Boomtown this weekend which is down in uh, Winchester and then off to Outlook Festival um, which you must this know. It's a big one yeah. Yeah 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 so yeah it's a good time. And um, is this is this the work rate you've just had over the past years has there been ups and downs because I mean you know drum and bass I guess has been seen as uh, fading into the background a bit with the rise of other genres uh, in the in this last decade, but is this how much you've been working all that time? To have sort of continuously for the last 20 years, just been doing my thing, and uh, like you say, drum and bass has had its ups and downs, but there's still a very sort of strong core following in most parts of the world, world for drum and bass, and um, I've been kind of going and doing those gigs and still maintain that. Let's, let's start from the start, I mean, you know, you talked about an 80s background, um, where did you first kind of get the the bug of uh, sound systems and DJing and all the rest? 
I mean, I guess the start of it for me, if you want to go kind of right back, would be when I was 10, 11 years old. And I had a big interest in playing the piano and drums and trumpet. I was very fortunate to have an amazing teacher, a guy called Nigel Crouch. And he basically, I kind of learned my scales and the classical stuff, which, you know, is I kind of got into. I, I remember I used to like kind of Tchaikovsky and and Rachmaninoff and and Katachurian and and certain certain composers like that. So there's a romantic sound from the start then. No, definitely, absolutely. And I and I was learning piano sort of full on, but then I kind of. I had a teacher when I was like eight, nine, then I met this guy, Nigel, when I was 10. And the first thing he came in and did was play me Chick Career, Lenore, on the keyboard when he came in and asked me if I liked this kind of stuff. And I was and I was kind of dazzled and said, what is this? Never heard of this kind of stuff before. Then he used to play me some stuff by Bill Evans, a track called Peace Peace. And instantly I was hooked on that whole kind of jazz sound and then he would basically teach me and do the normal stuff over the course of an hour lesson. And then afterwards, sort of get me into improvisation, jazz, blues, 12-bar blues, that kind of stuff. And, and basically also he would come around and leave me like Wurlitzer's, Moog's, Rhodes <laughs> that he had. Because he's like a session musician um, that played for all kinds of people and had every single keyboard. So he would come around literally and leave the clav at my house for like a week and say, have a mess about with that, see what you think of it. And I would literally sort of forget about what I was supposed to be doing and just play these synthesizers and, and, and roads and stuff. And that got me so into the sound of soul, jazz. And he also took me to, um, to see Chick Career at the Royal Albert Hall when I was sort of 11, 12 years old. And so I kind of got a grasp of what feel of music I wanted to do. And it kind of kept me out of trouble. And uh, that was kind of the start of my journey. And then I guess DJing came into it sort of mid-teens, whereby friends of mine would have parties and I'd go along to them and you'd do the usual thing and just have a laugh and whatever. But then I kind of really wanted to hear the music that I wanted to hear at those parties. So I used to steal my dad's stereo and speakers and reel-to-reel -reel or tape machine or whatever I could do. And I'd get all my music that I had. At that time as well, I kind of, I used to be into kind of the jam as well. And a lot of kind of that mod music and just a widespread stuff of disco, rock music, mod music. Well, there was a crossover there, wasn't there, in, in British culture of the mod soul boy kind of interface. 100%. 100%. And, and I'd just kind of go along and just throw down the music and before very long all the parties I was just standing behind a turntable a tape machine and playing the music and that got my interest in DJing. And uh, I mean were you into the subculture side of it the white socks and the the fashions of it and everything? Not not so much I mean obviously all the all my friends and stuff on different different guys did and did get into that but I was kind of just into the music side of it mm -hmm. and then got heavily into like reggae as well and and I was just, I was just solely on the music side of things. And whereabouts did you grow up? At that time, actually, I was living in Watford, okay. Hertfordshire. Yeah, so I was, I kind of, I originally was in Croydon in South London, and then family moved to uh, Watford, mm -hmm. 
and then spent a lot of time there and still have kind of a lot of connections in Hertfordshire and Watford to this day. Mm-hmm. And um, was there much going on beyond the parties you threw? I mean, it sounded like you were sort of doing it out of necessity to hear the music you wanted. I was, but then then um, a kind of few of like-minded friends came together and it was kind of heavily into the sort of 80s, 80s time, um, getting into the sound system culture, which was massive then. Uh, sounds like Coxon and Saxon and Java and all these kind of guys. And then you had this whole system guys like Rap Attack, uh, Special Edition, Norman and Giles doing the Camden Dingwalls thing. And So you'd be going down to London to these, these kind oh, of Oh, absolutely, stage, yeah. yeah. Because we, we were a very kind of... I think the pirate stations had a lot to do with kind of your education of music. Could you get them well. out in Watford? Totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally could, yeah. Um, and they kind of really kind of... Got your got you kind of educated into the the music you wanted to hear. Then there were so many parties. I mean, those days you could go out five nights a week. I remember <clears throat> going to places like Gossips, seeing Radigan in Dean Street, places like People's Club in Paddington and Parade Street, and just used to kind of go out to all these things whenever you could, and just hear so much good music. It was such an explosion of good music, and then you had so many record shops, of course, unlike today. And so you could spend a lot of your time um, going to record shops. And I thought record shops as well were a good source of just, it was a, it was a culture in itself, I think, record shopping, where you kind of went and just met different people. And it was, it was just good communication. And yeah, I kind of miss that nowadays with the whole online stuff and whatever, because you just had a good, it was a whole culture just going down and meeting people and buying records. And then, of course, you had the record fairs as well. I remember you used to go out all weekend and then get up Sunday morning after going out. In fact, we were still out, basically. Go and get some breakfast somewhere and go to King's Cross or go to a record fair and try, trying to pick up all the tracks that you'd heard, like Alistair from Rap Attack play at the Acklam Hall in Labour Grove. Yeah. And, and it, was just, uh, it was just an amazing time. And I also started a sound system with some friends of mine called Sunshine. And we, uh, one of the members, his dad helped us build some speakers. And he also owned a weightlifting club in Watford. So we basically spent most of our time underground, it was underneath the car park. And we spent most of our time just there, literally all night. Just, I think we were stealing all the, uh, the, the, the drinks from the gym that were sitting there and just basically playing music all night on this sound system. And that was, that was me, that was kind of me and what I wanted to do for life from then. And that was, right. I'm talking like, I don't know, 17, 18, 19. And did you ever get any sense that what was happening in this sound system culture at the time was gonna lead to bigger things in mainstream culture or were you purely doing it for the sense of belonging to the, to the underground? It was, it was really, I think, for the sense of belonging to a community of people, of like-minded people. And also it was, we used to set up parties in houses and charge like two pounds to get in. And that money would go directly back to buying music because, you know, they hadn't got much money then really. And they had like little part-time jobs and stuff. So it was really just a, just for maintaining and, and acquiring music. And also becoming a DJ in my mind, I had no idea that it would ever take to anything or go anywhere. 
or I'd be where I am today. Or, <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's just, it's just not even, you, you, you know, I would never have so believed it. So it was just, it was purely self-sustaining. Absolutely. Um, but, and what about as, you know, you started to get to Nike 1987 and the cold cut and bomb the base and um, massive attack and, and different people from that kind of exact scene you're describing started breaking through with, you know, sample collage records and stuff. I mean, did that sort of inspire you to think here's something new? Definitely. In the same time, of course, you had the uh, Summer of Love, the Acid House thing. Mm -hmm. And by that time, we were all going to massive parties of 10, 20,000 people. A lot of them were in the home counties yeah. in Hertfordshire and stuff and, and, and around those places. So we, we spent <clears throat> a lot of time going to those parties. And in fact, I, I remember going to a few of them and I'd be standing there. Then someone would tap me on the shoulder and I'd go, they go, hey, Danny, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, yeah well, what's happening? Like, this is my party. I'm like, you're joking. I'll be like, I, I went to school with him. So like a lot of these a lot of these people I kind of ended up knowing without realizing that they were doing what they were doing. And I'll be like, well, I'm DJing now. You know, can I get like a little gig at one of these things? Or And that was a big part of me getting onto the scene and, and doing stuff. So it was really that whole that whole house thing and that really kind of propelled me into kind of thinking, well, I could actually maybe possibly earn some money from this and take it somewhere. To, I mean, to step back, um, you know, sort of two notches, was, was there a point when you realised that this Summer of Love thing was something different? Because obviously it had strong connections to the to the soul and reggae and everything that was uh, happening through the 80s. But was there a magic moment for you when you just kind of looked around and went, this is, this is a new thing now? I don't think you could not notice that. <laughs> I mean, it was just, I always kind of, say to young kids that, that I know and kind of see out and about who always talk and reflect about those times and I say you really missed something amazing and the whole kind of scene in its infancy infancy I mean it was just it was just like I was saying at the top of the interview you know the sound systems were just phenomenal there were no restrictions a guy would go and hire someone's field off a farmer and be able to let loose and go and do whatever you had to go and do. And these things would last for like, I remember going to gigs and sort of being there for eight, nine hours, then just going home for a shower and then coming back again for the next like two days kind of thing. And just literally staying there and listening to all these guys play the most incredible music. You know, there was no, there was no kind of set format to music as well. It was just such a mishmash of different things and, and beautiful music. It was just an amazing time. You, you had to, there was no way you could not say this is something massive and big. You know, the police obviously were trying to stop it all, which was always to me kind of almost destructive in a way because a lot of the times in those parties, it did bring different cultures and different communities, different nationalities together. You know, you had the blacks, the whites, the Asians, and everyone that loved music has always been universal language of bringing people together. And it certainly did then. So it was a shame that the police kind of tried to just break it up and make it something that was a bad thing. When actually, when you actually looked at it properly, it was a good thing. Obviously, they had some, you know, I guess there were some legalities and things to consider and stuff. <laughs> but fundamentally, it was 
it was a good thing. Totally. And um, obviously it then progressed through into hardcore and, you know, that had its kind of more mental elements. Um, I mean, how did you feel about the scene developing through that and then into the, you know, the breakbeats and jungle and so on? I mean, like I said, there was, there was always, there was, if I remember, there was always a, a hardcore element, you know, I mean, you know, Joey Beltram kind of mentasm, whatever was, was a, was a harder track if you like. And then you still had, you still had your mellower house tracks, but everything was played in, in the same light kind of thing. And as you say, it did, I was a big kind of follower of hip house as well. I now understand why, because I used to love the break element. It wasn't just the four to the floor. You had this like, little break kind of shuffling along underneath it. And that used to kind of, I used to kind of enjoy that because it used to remind me of the 80s hip hop stuff that I used to mm -hmm. love so much. And then of course, like you say, it kind of progressed into uh, the four to the floor being left and then the break beat being solely on its own. And then suddenly we had all, we had drum and bass before we actually even knew it kind of thing, you know? And that was really me. I thought, I love this. This is, this is the piece of me. Let me, let me go off and concentrate on that. And is that when, when that started to appear, is that, that's really when you started thinking about making tunes or? Definitely. I remember, um, 1990, I did a tune. Um, a friend of mine had a semi kind of studio. I remember we took the break beat from Funky NASA, which was used in the eighties by DJ Mink, the mm -hmm. hip hop guy. And we took that and I did a track, um, which actually is, it's funny the other day I was collecting together stuff for the catalog for, for iTunes and stuff. And it's actually featured on my producer album, which is the series of albums that we had in, 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 in the uh, 2000s for like all the artists on the label could look in records. Yeah. And I was playing it the other day and it sounds so hilarious now to listen to, but, but it reminds me of a good time for me when I was just starting to kind of feel my way around the studio and learn how things worked and think what I was doing, but it's quite a funny track, but you know, sound of the times, but that was kind of the first time mm. that I made music. And did you think you wanted to get straight into studio? Because obviously some people were just going Amiga, plug it in, there we go, that's all you need, like one floppy disk and an Amiga. Or were you, because you had, you know, quite a musical background, were you already thinking, I want to be in proper studios, like proper musicians? No, because at that time, you know, we couldn't really, I couldn't really afford. Unlike today when you can just do everything on the laptop, and you can almost nick half of your stuff to actually make the music on. You mm. couldn't go and nick an outboard keyboard, outboard. You couldn't go and need nick a mixing desk. You had to have some kind of setup. The computers obviously weren't as fast as they are today as well. So you were limited actually to, to a certain extent of how many tracks you could almost have on a, on a tune before it started getting a bit messy and out of time. Mm -hmm. So it was just Atari computer. And uh, I think an early version of uh, C-Lab Creator. Right. Or something yeah. I think I used and, and then um, just kind of use what you could use. But obviously musical knowledge and having music to sample and stuff was a, a good thing. Yeah. So you could um, reference different bits and pieces. And you had an instant idea because I've been out for so many years. You had an instant idea of where you wanted to go, what you wanted to sample. It was just a construction of something that was maybe difficult that a few of you would get around a computer and you'd work it out basically. And then, um, you know, you were, you were gigging, you were 
kind of this was your job now uh you your tunes were coming out and then 1993 which um we've spoke about before but that was the year that kind of jungle separated jungle drum and bass really separated from hardcore techno on the other side um and you made music um, that's what i mean before that of course i mean the label good looking records started in 91 92 yeah with demon's theme and then as you say music i think was the third release in 1993 and you're right it was it was in itself it's its own genre it had its own people doing its own thing its own music and it really kind of took off on its own and um did you have negative feedback because of course like you say it, it was its own thing and it was very separate from uh i mean jungle was still known as dark side rave in a lot of uh quarters people were still doing that kind of long dark tunnel um very dark sounds mentasm noises and all the rest of it and here you were bringing musicality and sunshine and it's true but it's funny you mentioned it's funny you mentioned and andy's long dark tunnel yeah because you now go back and play that tune to me it's quite a musical track it is yeah you know and, and maybe at that time it was referred to as a maybe a dark track but you think back to it now it was a very very harmonious musical track you know um, but I wouldn't say there was, I mean, certain places, I, I, I do remember going to certain gigs and promoters would say, you know, Bookham, this is not going to work for you, really. You know, um, you know, I, I actually like what you're doing, but, you know, people want to hear it mad and, and, and dark and loud and stuff. And, and what you're doing, maybe it's got a bit too much funk and, and melody in it. Um, but it, it's funny, it's funny because at that time as well, you know, I, I've liked all aspects of music. So there were tracks that I used to play. When you go back, I mean, my, my Mixcloud page, I spent the last year uploading all the old sets that I can find from that time. And if you go on there and check it out and check the kind of history of what I was doing, a lot of stuff was actually, I'd say it was dark. Mm. You know, because I, I, I do like that aggressive side of music as well. And I, I've always kind of incorporated um, the dark and the reggae and the musical and different things take me at different times and I'll represent those things. Yeah, you certainly were never shy of a big amen break. Exactly, exactly. And certain kind of that, that, that whole mentasm sound and, you know, I used to love that. So there were, I think, in general, there was negative feedback to the whole scene in certain quarters of the press saying, you know, what are these guys doing? You know, what is this music? It's, you know, it's rubbish. It's, it's not going to last two seconds. And, and, and always said in like, like a quote, you know, people and the press said what we were doing in drum and bass as, as a whole thing wouldn't last like two minutes, two years, let alone, you know, 20 odd years. So there, there were kind of, there was skepticism in, in, in what we were doing, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember he, as as a teenager kind of hearing this stuff, only hearing it on my mate's mum's car stereos as we drove through the countryside, you know. <laughs> just going, this is a bit of a mess, this stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, of course you don't realise until you hear it on a system and you've got the bass kind of holding it down while all these brakes are flying around. And then you're like, okay, there's there's sophistication here. It's uh, Definitely. serious. Um, I think another thing as well, you know, obviously... At that time, and right throughout the eighties, we didn't, you know, people didn't know the maybe the seriousness of sampling a piece of music from someone else. 
it was almost like the thing you did. And that was the way you made music. There wasn't no understanding of a sample clearance or anything like this. And that was, that I find really funny going back and listening to like a lot of the old tracks, um, just with how kind of obviously people would sample stuff. And even like the, the, the big rave tune from the last week would get sampled and resampled. And, exactly, a yeah, good know, point. Everyone yeah. used Cubic by 808 State, you know. That's right. 50 different records, 100 yeah. different records. Yeah, that's right. Some, some will make a track and then someone will actually, there'll be, there'll be no time delay, there'll be no gap between, okay, well, someone's used this sample, we'll wait a couple of years before we use it again. You're right. 10 more tracks will come out with the same sample. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess you were sort of slowly differentiating yourself from that with trying to, you know, bring in the more original sampling and more live musical elements and stuff. As I mean, I think, that's, I think that's my love of jazz and soul and stuff. And also at that time you had, you know, you had Korg and Roland producing a lot of great keyboards with some great sounds. And I used to love all those cosmic kind of string and, and pads that used to be um created on the on the, on, the, on these keyboards so I had to mix kind of these pads and sounds maybe get a guy to come in and give you like a little live trumpet or sax hit or something and 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 mixing all that with samples as well it was just a gorgeous mix of of sounds that I just love to use I guess and I mean to bring in another negative did you ever um, uh, you know there was this term intelligent drum and bass here we go which i'm sure you've dealt with this many many times before but um which must have been a millstone round your neck i mean in certain senses it was a racist term because it ended up being white student friendly drum and bass as opposed to the ragga jungle which somehow was meant to be unintelligent well i mean there's several points there i mean first of all i don't think you know to have i've always said to have something and call something intelligent, then, then the rest must be unintelligent, which is kind of a bit stupid in itself. Mm -hmm. And as well, it, it didn't really define a musical sound for me because in all aspects of music, even the dark stuff, you had a nice musical pad that would appear in a track as well. So yeah. what do you, you know, I, I've kind of never, I've never got into this whole labeling of music and never know where that kind of came from because you know it wasn't um just studenty white kids making the music very much the opposite yeah it, it was it was an all cultures thing it came from everywhere and different people made different sounds different times so it was uh i mean, I mean even today people want to label something they're into and and how can i do that when i came i come from a, a time when you just heard a piece of music if you liked it you play it and that could become that could come from any genre of music it doesn't matter so it was never it never kind of made sense to me but you were happy to uh to go with the drum and bass scene i mean you sort of felt that as home um, definitely you know you were you you were willing to be contained within drum and bass per se. I mean, as a definitely, it was it was a very exciting start of something that I was there at the beginning and wanted to be a part of, and have met a lot of great people through it. And it was just just an exciting time for the music. And 
And definitely 100%, I was LTJ Bookham, drum and bass, DJ producer. <laughs> so tell me about the social side of it as we go through into the, the mid-90s. I mean, um, you know, what, what was happening with the clubs that you were playing at and, and running? I mean, I mean, drum and bass itself attracted a lot of high-profile people from all walks of musical life mm. and the club scene um there were some fantastic clubs that that became famous up, right up until now like metalheads and speed and our own logical progression that was at the ministry and around the world and stuff and then of course you kind of got into a lot of big labels like the london's and the sony's and different people became involved and then you kind of really kind of sensed that it was something serious. Mm -hmm. We out, out of something that was done of of love and fun, and and just to do stuff, it became an actual career for a lot of people. And I think that was kind of really the that was that was the change. That was the start of the change. And I was think. it exciting? I mean, glamorous because I mean that was a time when the music industry was swimming in money. And uh, that's right. As, uh, as James Lavelle said when I spoke to him recently, you know, it was Spice Girls money kind of flooding in. It was. And and then there were and there were people in the industry who wanted to throw it around. And you had people like David Bowie looking at drum and bass and that's right. And Bjork and all these these kind of people. That's so right. Did it feel exciting and glamorous? It. I mean. It was just it was just nice to know that something you started doing had some future to it, and you could actually leave a daytime job and and go and do something with yourself because it was something you wanted to go and do. Glamorous, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it did kind of feel that to me. It was it, it was just uh, proof that we were kind of all right in doing something that we wanted to do. Mm. And you're right, there were. Are you you were never one to get quite quite so caught up in the DJ ego thing. I mean, I remember seeing you uh, back in the mid-late 90s in Brighton and sort of thinking, oh, nice motor. And then you got out and carried your own record box. I was like, okay. Yeah, I still do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I you mean, know, that, that, that was, uh, there, were, there were a lot of people who did get caught up in the kind of, you know, got some lackeys and, you know, we've got people to look after me. Yeah, and get I, I mean, I, sometimes you go out and play three or four gigs in a night and I was genuinely tired and friends that were in the car were like, let me carry yeah. that for you. And it was, it was, that was the only, the only reason why I did that. But I wasn't, no, I didn't, I didn't kind of have that. But a point you did, you know, a point you had to have like a driver. Mm. Because you think about it, in the early 90s, it wasn't so much a worldwide thing like now where every weekend you're getting on a plane to go somewhere. And it was doing four gigs in the night, <laughs> doing maybe 500 plus miles. And you try doing that and DJing, rushing into all these gigs and stuff. Sort of come like four in the morning, you can't even see straight. You can't even walk on a straight line. Yeah. You, you, you need someone to like drive you to get you to go yeah. and be able but to But there's play a difference between a driver and an entourage, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I, mean, I had yeah. the people around me. Um, but it was it was not for glamour reasons. It was just for assistance reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I can certainly remember sort of walking into DJ booths at certain points and... Uh, just having to get through like nine people <laughs> who were all yeah. with the DJs there at the moment. And, but uh, but as, as well, as well, I mean, there were, you know, everyone went out with their crew because it was it was as exciting for the people that knew the DJ as for the DJ himself. It was fun times for everyone, you know. It was, totally, a, yeah. it was, a, it was a, so you can understand like people wanting to be involved and uh, kind of get wrapped up in the whole like, I'm with him kind of mode. Yeah, it was good. 
And because um, drum and bass has been seen as being insular, you know, people started setting rules about what it could and couldn't be. And obviously trends move on. The music industry started to contract. Other things came in, Garage came in and then dubstep and so on. Um, did you feel you had to, were there things you had to do to readjust as that, as I guess the spotlight shifted from it? Work hard, work harder. I mean, it, you're right, it did it did have it have its shift, but I just think that it was so set in its ways with so many people and figureheads and their labels that it was kind of, uh, you know, the stone kept rolling kind of thing. And um, it wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it didn't need outside support and stuff from like majors and whatever, but I just think that drum and bass was set as its, as its own genre and the labels and, and guys involved kind of took up the mantle and took it forward. I think that's really been proved recently that what was often perceived as protectionism in a negative sense um, has actually created an industry which 20 years into drum and bass's existence is, is rock solid. No, you're right, but then uh, as well, you still get high profile pop artists still having their drum and bass mix on their digital single, if mm -hmm. you like, um, along with their house and different dubstep and whatever, you still have the, the drum and bass mix. And I think that has always been something that's been there. It's been consistent right the way through. Mm. But I don't think it's just been shelved and no one wants to actually like be a part of it. And I think a lot of artists have, because maybe there was a point when drum and bass was too insular and people would would say kind of like, no, we don't want to do that for that person or that person. But then that, that kind of doesn't make sense, does it? You want the music to be out there. You want it to be heard by as many people as possible. And I think that there has been a continual trend from a certain time of artists doing drum and bass mixes of pop artists and mm. and, 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 and keeping it there, basically. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the point where I realised that that was ex fully acceptable again and was really changing things was that high contrast remix of Adele. I mean, you know, absolutely. like, oh, this is an amazing piece of music in its own right. And, and you know, Annie Mack plays it on a Friday night and the world's yeah. going mad to it. Yeah, 100%. And uh, long live those kinds of remixes. And that, that, that in turn has led, you know, with what Hospital have been doing and then on to DJ Fresh and Drum and Bass having its first number one, 19 years or 20 years after Drum and Bass was invented. Yeah, which is amazing. Um, I guess that must have sort of, a few people must have kind of done a double take when that happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, I mean, it was more of a dubstep, well, well, it was all kind of mixes to it, but yeah. it's just amazing. It's so good to see that happen and it'd be good if, if more of us could kind of follow and uh, get drum and bass to that kind of level. Mm. I mean, do you have uh, do you have secret pop aspirations? Do you always think, oh, if I just get that vocal right vocalist, I could write a number one? I'd I'd love to get I'd love to remix a large pop act, or you know, I mean, you can you can interpret music in your own way from from bits and pieces of anything that you're given. Mm. And so, I definitely, it's something I think that I'd definitely like to venture into with the label running full steam now. Um, I think uh, that an album is something that, that I want, want to definitely get done for the label mm -hmm. and, and definitely incorporate all kinds of different styles of music and people from all genres, sure. past, present and future. And um, I mean, talking of genres, 
did you follow the new things that emerged in drum and bass's wake? I mean, uh, especially dubstep, obviously, which has changed the whole landscape, which again, like you say, no one would have predicted from ultimately a bunch of boys from Croydon mucking about and doing stuff for their own pleasure has ended up being world shaking. I mean, it's really shifted the industry in a lot of ways. Yeah, which is amazing. I mean, it's hard to, obviously I do follow um, what goes on the stars and the different things and they got the whole trap thing happening and mm. and it's it's amazing and kind of uh, you know a lesson to us all as well in, in getting something and, and promoting it and doing it to that level I think it's fantastic what's happening but musically music I mean genres. did you have time to to keep up with kind of small shifts it and is, innovations it is hard because yeah. to be honest with you I must spend about three days a week two or three days a week, just listening to drum and bass stuff that's being sent to me from all parts of the globe. It's, it's, it's phenomenal the amount of music that's being made in all genres. You know, I still get house stuff sent and tech stuff sent and I'm still interested in all aspects of music. But you could actually sit for probably seven days, for 12 hours a day, just keep, you could, just yeah. keeping up with, and you still miss something. You still get to like six months out of the night and think, what's that track? And you've still missed something, and that's a, a, a both beautiful and annoying thing about the amount of music being made. Because yeah. I'm an addict. I want everything that I like that could possibly be in my computer to go and play out. It's really funny, the mixture of kind of expressions I can see on your face as, as you describe that process of listening. There's a, there's a mixture of total love for it work ethic and obsession. <laughs> yeah, there is, yeah. Because uh, as well, you have to, I find I, with me, maybe other people are different, but I find sometimes I'm not in the right frame of mind to actually digest music. And, you know, you can't, you know, there is a certain work ethic to it when I have to put aside some days in the week to do that. Then if I'm not, in the, if I'm overtired or just not in the right frame of mind, then you can miss things that you can skip over and by not concentrating fully. And that really does wind me up. <laughs> and, and I like those times when I'm... When you hear someone play a track that you slept on. Definitely, yeah. Which is, again, an annoying and a beautiful thing because you race up to me going, what is that? It's a wicked track. I've got to get hold of that. And then in the same time, you're like, you go back to that producer and go, please send me that. They go, Danny, I sent it to you six months ago. And you're like, you're joking me. And, you know, that happens. Um, so... Well, I guess I was going to sort of round up on on where next, but I mean, you said you're you're going to working towards an artist album of your your own, and definitely. I mean, good looking records, as you say, has been has been going for like twenty years. We had a, had a small break and relaunched um, this year, and we're literally putting out an album a month, yeah, and a piece of vinyl a month as well, which some people are surprised at, but it's something that we want to continually support. And in uh, June, we had uh, the first release of uh, a new mix series concept called Book em In Sessions. And July, we had an album called Collectivism. Uh, this month, we got a Makoto producer, mm-hmm. following on from the producer series. Next month, we got um, an album called Resistance. Um, then we got also a new Earth album coming as well, because I'm still interested in that kind of whole down tempo stuff. I do love to hear that music still. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a Studio X album. We're basically doing a lot of stuff, 
every month, which you can uh, check out, of course, on uh, the Facebook Good Looking and the real LTJ book on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, plug, plug. And, and uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely leading towards me to doing an album, which I'm semi kind of working on now. Have you got uh, specific ideas of people that you want working on it, music, type of instruments or type of vocalists? Or? I have. I'm sitting with a, a long list and, and going down it and trying to work out, you know, uh, who I'd like to work with, who would work with me, um, what kind of ideas I want to go and do, what kind of styles I want to do. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, a whittling down process that you can't kind of sit and just go, yeah, okay. I want 16 tracks and that's what I'm going to do. I think it's constantly a work in progress, but something that I'm kind of excited about doing with all the new kind of processes of making music and stuff. And, uh, yeah, can't wait. And I'm DJing constantly every weekend as well. Now without the vinyl and using tractor, which has been a whole new experience for me as well in the last three years, but the best thing I ever did in my whole life. And, um, yeah, we go on. You sound like an optimist. I mean, it sounds like you, you're you're comfortable with where the scene and technology and musical developments are, and and your place within it. I am. I think. I think it's. I think it's exciting times for music and for how you go about processing it, DJing it. I really do. You know, and I'm kind of, you know, I I I kind of say like the amount of music that's coming through and stuff, but. That's fantastic. You know, if there was nothing coming through or people weren't making music, I'd be sitting here feeling very glum. You know, and for me and Good Looking, it's, it's all about the fans. I've had some fantastic fans over 20 years that maintain to follow what I do and just come out. I mean, I'm just, I've just I've been doing fabric um, for the last six years. I'm now doing 12 months a year of fabric every month, the book of in sessions, the last Friday of each month. And I mean, you know, the, the room is packed for the people wanting to hear that music and for me it is all about the fans and the music so it's you know yes I'm definitely optimistic about what's happening and what's going on and I think you have to embrace change as well mm -hmm. which is a hard thing for an old guy like me to do sometimes but I think you have to I think you have to embrace change and adopt it to what you're doing and it's a it's a good thing there's there's too many kind of you know with the age of people kind of writing online and everything else, you know, there's there's a lot of negativity kind of out there and that, but I don't see it in that way at all. And I see positive, I see good things happening, and I think we should all embrace those things and not be so negative about so much. Offering you space to place new steps of change.